I actually don't feel that out of pressure. Um, if anything, to me, it's just about continuing to like live authentically. And part of that living authentically is that there's going to be ups and downs. Like it's not a linear progression at all. Um, and just giving myself grace with that is really important. Um, and, and sharing those ups and downs because I think I spent for so long thinking that there are so many people that talk about eating disorders like after they've conquered them or when they used to struggle, but I'm over that now. And that's very, and you see it a lot in the running world. And I'm really, really appreciative of athletes who talk about it, but they also talk about it like as things of the past, that it's no longer an issue. Um, but I think the more the reality is, is that there are many, many people out there who it is still an issue day to day. And I think that if I waited to a point where I felt like I was totally over it and like in a really solid recovered place, honestly, I probably would never talk about it. That's Amelia Boone. And this is episode 76 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome back or welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and this week I've got a unique episode to share with all of you. I recently sat down with two past guests of the show, Amelia Boone, who's a world-class obstacle racer and badass ultra runner, as well as Brad Stolberg, author of the books Peak Performance and The Passion Paradox. He's also a columnist at Outside Magazine, and we had a roundtable discussion about mental health, eating disorders, OCD, recovery, running and racing, relevance, social media, sharing our stories, and a lot more. This is an important discussion. Amelia and Brad share their personal experiences with disordered eating and OCD, respectively. I chime in with some insight of my own, and we get into a number of tangential topics that I think many of us have dealt with at some point or might even be struggling with currently. There's a lot to think about and take away from this one, so let's dive right in with Amelia Boone and Brad Stulberg. I am here with Millie Boone and Brad Stolberg. This is going to be more of, I think, a roundtable discussion about mental health, disordered eating, OCD, how all those things intersect than I expect it to be an interview style podcast. But Amelia Boone, Brad Stolberg, welcome to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Oh man, great to see you again, Mario. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to be here. Both of you are returning guests of the Morning Shakeout podcast. I've had you each on individually, and it's been a while for you, Amelia. You were one of the first guests on the Morning Shakeout podcast. I believe one of the first 10, and now we're at 75-plus episodes. Brad, not that long ago that you were on the show, but it's great to have you both here. I look forward to this discussion. Amelia, I'll start with you since you have the mic. How are you doing? Uh, man, that's like a loaded question. No, i <laughs> It's one of those things that when people ask me, I actually have to like sit with myself. And be like, How am I doing right now? I imagine it probably changes by the day. It, it definitely changes by the day. And I think that overall right now, um, I'm in a space where I feel very connected with myself and like with where I'm going and where I'm headed. But I'm also in a space where it's just like, okay, like I... I came out and talking about something and, and luckily I had, I actually spoke with Brad about it before I, before I, um, talked about, you know, my issues and treatment and everything. And he was like, you're expecting waves. Like you'll come out and you'll talk about, 
you know, your struggles with eating disorders will open up. You'll get a lot of validation from people and then you'll kind of come down off of that and, and life will move on. And you're like, wait, I still, I still have issues. I still have things to work on. Um, and so I think that's kind of where the space that I'm in right now, but it's a constant like evolving of myself. And I don't remember the exact date that you wrote your post about your experience in treatment and speaking about your eating disorder publicly for the first time. But how long ago was it that you checked out of rehab? So I um, was in a partial hospitalization program for three, about three months total. Um, and that was from April through the end of June. Um, and then I... And then I transitioned back to life and work and everything. And that's when I started to put together. And I, so I actually published the blog post a few weeks after kind of letting everything kind of distill. And before you published that blog post, it was quite lengthy. You went to some pretty deep levels in there. How long had you been thinking about writing it? And did you ever hit a point where you thought, I'm not going to write this. I'm not going to share anything. I'll just try to reappear into life without this dramatic grand reentrance. Uh, absolutely. I, I, the funny thing is I've actually had iterations of it written for a very long time, um, for many years actually, because, because this isn't an issue. It wasn't that I was, you know, 32 years old and then started battling an eating disorder. You know, I had been dealing with it since I was 15, 16 years old and just in ebbs and flows. And so there are many portions of it that I had written, um, but it just, it had never felt right to me because I knew that I wasn't really as, as many parts of myself that I thought I was in recovery for a while, or I would be having good days. Like it just never really rang true because I never really fully let go of everything. Um, and, um, but there were times definitely in it. And after I left Opal, which was the treatment facility where when I was sitting there writing it and I put it together and I remember right before I like hit publish, I go, why am I do? I had to kind of connect. I'm like, why am I doing this? Do I need to do this? Like, I mean, what is going to happen? I could try to like run down all of the various scenarios, um, because it's like, nobody was asking where I was and it wasn't that it was something that I needed to disclose. Um, but then I realized I did for my own mental, for, for owning myself and for recognizing that part of me, um, instead of hiding that, instead of hiding that shame. Digging into that a little bit, when you were working on what eventually became this post, who were you doing that for? Was it for an audience or were you writing for yourself primarily? Absolutely for myself. Um, I always, I joke that all of my writing, um, which is less frequent than it used to be, but all my writing has always been therapy for me and has always been a way for me really to process myself. And it's kind of fun to go back and I'm sure Brad can relate to this, like go back and look at things that you've written in the past and years past and like how it's changed and evolved mm -hmm. um, and how your language has changed and evolved. Um, so it has been kind of a selfish endeavor for me. Um, and that's really how I really center myself. Um, Brad, I'm going to throw it to you for a second here. Last time we had a conversation for the podcast, we talked a bit about your struggles with OCD. And you wrote a big piece that was published for Outside Online about your experiences and what you went through. 
Was anything that Amelia just described familiar to you? Yeah, I think uh, a, a fair amount of it um, is familiar. The what I what I'd be curious to to ask Amelia as well is, um, I guess you know, like why did you write it? Because for me, it was a few things going on. One is this notion that. I was becoming a public figure that was being celebrated for my mind. And then this happened. And it was, for me, it was more sudden. And OCD, as we talked about on the first, um, the first time I was on your show, is really like, is far down the rabbit hole of losing your mind as you can get without really like having a psychotic break. I mean, just totally uncontrollable, intrusive thoughts following them down rabbit holes. Often people with OCD um, think they have schizophrenia um, and they don't, but that's the level of, um, of sure. dis-ease in the mind. So here I am having people write me and ask me how I got to be where I am and celebrating my mind and my mind was going crazy. And the amount of cognitive dissonance between this public view of me and what was actually, actually happening... happening. Um, that started to become a source, like a, another source of distress in addition to everything else. So a big part of why I wrote it um, was just to alleviate some of that because I, I, I didn't want to pretend anymore. Um, and it was almost just to like get this enormous weight off my shoulders. Um, and I wasn't sure if I could be an expert. I mean, at the time when I was really in the thick of it, there's no way I thought I was going to write another book. I was just like day to day, day to day. How can I like try to fix this? Um, which maybe we'll get into later. Like that thinking is not really the right thinking for something like this because it gets in the way. But anyways, um, it's all a long winded way of saying that, that yeah, the, the, the thing that resonated most with me of what Amelia said is just the hesitancy to write it. Definitely the waves that we talked about, um, and and then this this notion of cognitive dissonance between public figure and um, and what was actually happening. What did writing it and putting that out into the world for everyone to read do for you? Um, I think it allowed me to drop my shoulders a little bit and feel like I wasn't a fraud and wasn't pretending. Um, and it's tricky because as a writer, there's always this question of how much of myself do I want to expose. And when I was speaking with some other close friends that are writers about whether or not to write this essay, um, some of them gave me the advice, don't. They're like, your writer is a career and it is a job. And you don't like you if you work the nine to five, you might not tell everyone that you work with this is going on. And there's a lot of merit to that view. So it's this question of how much do I like really let my heart out into my work? Um, and I've always, as Amelia said, like writing is therapy. I never write something because I have it figured out. Like the process of writing is what helps me to figure it out. Um, and um, another podcast guest of yours, Rich Roll, it, like so much of why I look up to Rich is because he's been so authentic with his story. And it's sitting there. I have my core values. I try to practice what I preach on my desk. And one of them is authenticity. Um, and I ask myself, what would Rich do? And he'd write about it. And like Rich is still here and he's doing fine. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure if I answered your question, but but well, but that that's where it was at. My biggest fear in writing it, and I'm, it was actually less about what other people are going to think, less about what it was going to do to my career as a writer. My biggest fear writing it is that I wrote it from a place when I wasn't actually over it, and I 
I had this, the, the, the voice in my head was telling me, oh, if you write this and you're going to be, you know, all buttoned up, big shot that has it figured out and you're going to help the masses by writing this piece, I am going to come back with such a vengeance that I'm going to make you regret ever writing about this. Um, that was the biggest challenge for me. Well, I'd like to dig into that with both of you. You're both very recognizable people in your own worlds, both actual worlds and online worlds. You're both in therapy for disordered eating, for your struggles with OCD. What did your therapists say when, or did you even talk to them about writing a public post that would be widely read? Yeah, so I, I can lead off there. Um, so I totally, so my therapist, her name is Brooke, um, and, and she's been just so phenomenal to work with um, in, in helping me through all of this and make sense of it. Um, so I absolutely talked to her about it. Um, for, uh, for a while, a fear that I had um, was that I was only writing it because of my ego and because I wanted the validation of being this person that could be open about their mental health. And then that became an obsessive thought pattern. So I'd follow that pattern and say, well, what does that say about me? Like, am I a terrible person? Am, am I just like an egomaniac that literally needs people to praise them to feel good? Like, why can't I just recover on my own? Why do I need to be public about this? Um, and then there was another part of me that I mentioned was, was just scared. Well, if I write this, is it going to come back? And what Brooke helped me realize is that like that endless questioning about motives and that fear, like those are the core things for OCD. So like my, my homework in therapy became to write the article and share it. And every time those questions came up, the, the, the only true answer is like- Sit with them for a while. Sit, well, yeah, the only true answer is like, yup, like some of this might be my ego. And like, yup, it could come back worse. And that's okay. Yeah, I, I think a lot of- is that recognizing that and then without the judgment there. So just being like, yep, it's there and that's part of it. But instead of going into that pattern then of judgment is something that I've had to work on. Um, Cause I actually, part of my disorder is actually, I was di before, long before the eating disorder, I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder um, as a young kid, which then took various iterations, but there's still a lot of obsessive thought patterns. And so I resonate a lot with what Brad is saying. And, and for me, um, I actually, because I was kind of going through a transition with my therapist, I never really ran it by them, but I always kind of knew that it was something that I wanted to speak about, but I did have the same fears of Brad that when I had a, back actually in college, I had spoken about it. I remember on the college campus being like, I recovered from anorexia. And I held myself out as this beacon of recovery. And I relapsed hard and hard the next year. And that gave me a lot of hesitancy because I was aware that if I came out publicly about this, then I may feel an added pressure that I had to do everything right. And that I then had to be this like beacon of, of recovery. Um, but I'm learning it was so far. I mean, it's only it's only been, you know, 
a few months, but I actually don't feel that out of pressure. Um, if anything, to me, it's just about continuing to like live authentically. And part of that living authentically is that there's going to be ups and downs. Like it's not a linear progression at all. Um, and just giving myself grace with that is really important. Um, and, and sharing those ups and downs because I think I spent for so long thinking that there are so many people that talk about eating disorders like after they've conquered them or when they used to struggle, but I'm over that now. And that's very, and you see it a lot in the running world. And I'm really, really appreciative of athletes who talk about it, but they also talk about it like as things of the past, that it's no longer an issue. Um, But I think the more the reality is, is that there are many, many people out there who it is still an issue day to day. And I think that if I waited to a point where I felt like I was totally over it and like in a really solid recovered place, honestly, I probably would never talk about it. Well, well, and I think too, you've got to be in a place even while you're still dealing with an issue like that where you can talk about it responsibly. Right. But to your point, I think for a lot of people when they read a post such as yours and maybe they're struggling with the same thing or they're at some stage of it during that time, there's more of a feeling of solidarity mm-hmm. where they're like, this person is going through exactly what I'm going through right now. And I might be able to take something from their story. And one thing I want to talk about later in this conversation is the influence of social media and the internet and what it can do for situations like this. But in particular cases like this, it can be a very good thing for someone who otherwise would have no idea that someone that they look up to is struggling with the exact same thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it it brings people together the more that we can share our struggles. But at the same time, you know, it is, there are parts of me that I do feel super exposed in some regards because then I start things that I would never question before um, talking about or posting. I remember afterwards I was like, wait, can I still like talk about my running or post pictures of me running or are people going to say, well, she's not really in true recovery because she's still running. And like, how do you navigate that world of an eating disorder and how that ties in with sport? And I'm sure Mara, you can speak to that as well. Um, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. Um, but there is kind of that vulnerability um, as well. And I'm not sure if you experienced that all as well, Brad. Yeah, totally. And, and I think that the interesting part that, that I'll, I'll layer on a bit, um, the part about people thinking that like they're on the other side, and especially in the endurance sports world, I think it's really hard to truly be on the other side of these things. I think it's more of a, I've learned something about myself and I'm not going to judge this part of myself, and I, I have a different way of relating to it and in, in working through it. Um, there's all kinds of research that shows that that lots of endurance athletes that are really pushers, so they want to perform their best, they want to run faster and longer, um, they're, they're likely to have some kind of insensitivity to a neurochemical called dopamine. Um, and dopamine is the neurochemical that is all about striving, um, perfection, conscientiousness, go, go, go. Um, and you need more of it to feel content. And that lack of contentment is something that also manifests in lots of anxiety disorders and eating disorders and lots of mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, because the, the ability to just put your shoulders down and be like, huh, like I am loved and everything is okay. 
you probably wouldn't be running 100 mile races if you felt that way. Right. I mean, so it so I do think that this is something that that definitely impacts the endurance sports community um, probably more than the general population. Certainly, we know there's research that eating disorders do. I'd hazard a guess that other addictive behaviors, whether it's addictive thinking patterns, so anxiety, depression, OCD, or substance abuse, is also in the endurance sports uh, community. Absolutely. Per- perhaps at a higher prevalence. Anecdotally, that seems true. Um, so I think that, that, that that's another interesting thing to, to just to keep in mind um, through, through this conversation is I'm not sure that I think you can get over certain behaviors, but I think it's a temperament that is very hard to change of like push, 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 go, 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 perfect, perfect, perfect that can turn against you. Speaking for myself, I don't think you ever really get over any of these things. I just think you develop a better toolbox to be able to deal with some of the feelings and temptations that are are always going to pop up. And that's just speaking for myself. I've never been clinically diagnosed with an eating disorder, but I definitely engage in patterns of disordered eating for a period of my life. And I wouldn't say I'm completely over it, but I'm far better equipped now at 37, having worked on it for the last 14 or so years than I was when I was 22, 23 years old and in the throes of it. And I think there are some people who never really develop those tools and they very quickly, I hate saying relapse, but essentially that's what happens. They relapse into the same behavior patterns and they're sort of back to square one. But I think, you know, with therapy, with finding things like, you know, maybe it's endurance sports, having other outlets, it never goes away, but you're better equipped to deal with them, or you can deal with them in a less self-destructive way than you were previously. Yeah. And I, I think there's there's a question, and it's funny because as we mentioned Rich Roll, who we all <laughs> he's fantastic. Um, but people ask him all the time, you know, did you trade one addiction for another with with you know, alcohol to endurance sports? And he was like, he'll say, maybe. Maybe I did, and um, and there's no real answer to it. Um, but I think that you're right, Mario, in that it's it's adding like tools to the toolkit. Um, and um, as 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 I'm kind of navigating this going forward, um, I realize now that like my my toolkit is way more robust than it was, you know, 15, 20 years ago when I was when I was trying all of this, you know, the the first time around. Um, and I think that's so important. Um, and then also in terms of like protecting as, as I kind of navigate this entire idea of how to speak about this when you're still kind of going through it as well. Um, I said that, the, you know, there's, there's a time to educate, there's a time to advocate, and there's a time just to get the F out, you know, and that sometimes you do have to protect yourself. Um, and I think that's so important for people to recognize that you can advocate, you can educate people, but then sometimes you just got to pull back and just like focus on yourself. And so I'm still right now trying to like find that good balance, balance right. of, of, of those times. I'd love to comment on that because um, I think that that is so wise that you've already come to that. Um, I think that, uh, so that essay that I wrote, it's now been almost two years. So it's been quite some time. Um, And for a while, I was really focused on using my platform to educate, to advocate, and for all the self-serving reasons of just doing therapy on the page. Um, Then I actually think, Mario, it was in a conversation with you 
um, where we talked about, I, I wrote an article where um, it was really just transcribed interview conversations with other endurance athletes that have struggled with really bad anxiety or depression. I remember that piece, yeah. And um, Mario gave me the advice. He's like, you know, you talk to these six people, it's not about your story, publish it, and then go back to writing the stuff that you used to write. And that was really good advice. And I did that because it was like, it was a way to get outside of my own head and my own story and myself. And also to start to disconnect my identity from this thing that was feeling like a huge part of my identity. You can be a little more neutral in that type of situation. Yeah. So, so I think that that was really helpful. Um, and then I didn't write anything about mental health, particularly for, I don't know, about a year. Um, and just now, like I'm starting to think about coming back to it now that I feel like I'm, again, I don't think you really ever get on the other side of it, but that it's not so much an issue in my day-to-day life anymore. You have better tools. Yeah. How do you navigate the path moving forward? As you said, it was two years ago when you wrote this article. And if you haven't read the article, look for it on outside. I can't remember what the title of it was, but you essentially had this breakdown when you were on book tour in yeah. New York and things kind of spiraled from there. So how have you've been able to move forward from that and how do you continue to move forward from here on out? Um, man, how long do we have, right? That's like the, how are you doing question? (laughs) Um, so I, um, so the first thing that, that was the most helpful is just getting professional help and realizing that like what was happening in my brain, like was not normal and not being ashamed to get help. Um, and then it was just finding a physician that I trust, a psychiatrist, um, and then a therapist that I trust. Um, I take a medication called sertraline, which is an SSRI. Uh, I've been taking it for two years. Um, I think, and I, it's funny because I say I think, like I'm getting to a point where I'd like to try to taper off of it and see what happens. Um, with obsessive compulsive disorder, the, the algorithm is not as clear for depression, anxiety. These drugs are often used short term. There's a school of thought that says OCD, you just take them. Um, and then I asked myself like, well, why do I actually want to taper off of it? And that gets into a whole question. Um, and then for me, I think that the, the, the two biggest things were just having a therapist that I trust and going to therapy every week for a year and, having someone that was an expert in obsessive compulsive disorder and really working on the skills that help you move through that. Um, and then just the, the love that I allowed myself to accept that was totally helped by writing that piece, um, of other people and realizing that there are all of these other people that don't have their shit together and that that's okay. And that we're all kind of working through this, um, together. I think Amelia, actually, now that you've said it publicly on the podcast, when I wrote that story, Amelia emailed me and said, like, it's something that people don't know about me, but like, I suffer from a lot of the same thoughts and have been for a long time. And I got a lot of those emails from lots of people. Um, And that was a big part of my recovery. And, And not just knowing from a comparative stance, like, oh, I'm not alone. These other people have problems, but like, really feeling the love and then being able to shoot someone like Amelia a text in in the middle of her stuff and have that level of connection. Speaking for myself too, having written about my own disordered eating in the past, that's been the biggest thing that's jumped out at me is the number of people that I hear from. And I always end those pieces saying, if I can help point you in the right direction, please don't hesitate to write to me. I want to help you however I can. But it also is a good reminder that everybody's got something going on. And no matter what you see 
on social media or how great someone's life looks from the outside internally, there's probably something there that they're dealing with that they either haven't confronted themselves, don't know how to confront, are afraid to confront, and most certainly don't want to share. And I think it's, again, when these types of stories get shared, there is a feeling of solidarity or it's just enough to spur someone to take action uh, in some way. And um, I think that's why it's important that we continue to have these open dialogues. Not that that heals anything on itself, but it can definitely be the catalyst for a lot of people to seek professional help or at least just reach out to someone and get a little assistance. So I, I want to catch myself because I was doing something from a mind space of you know two years post and now being in a spot where day to day this isn't really an issue. And I think it's really important not to romanticize though. And I kind of just caught myself doing it like, oh, all the love and connection with people. That's true. And like when you're in it, none of that really matters. Like what really matters is like finding a therapist that you trust and like getting the help. Um, because I think that there's like this other tendency to like almost not celebrate, but talk about like mental health and mental illness in this very romantic sense. And, oh, I'm so brave and I share my story. All of that is true. But like when you're in it, that doesn't matter. Like what matters is if the therapist tells you like you need to confront your fears by doing this, you, you do that. Um, and I just wanted to make sure that I'm catching myself. Like it's a, it's a potential byproduct that can happen from these things. But it is not like, oh, we should celebrate this or it's all lovey-dovey and romantic. And I think in a way, there's also the 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 kind of like we humans, we need val- validation as a basic human need. For a long time, I actually didn't really I, I was in the mindset. I'm like, I don't need validation. I should be an evolved human being. And, you know, I don't I don't need to hear from other people and things like that. I remember actually my therapist being like, what's wrong with wanting to be validated? And I was like, uh, uh. Uh, I don't I have don't, an answer for you. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but in a way, like, I think that I've had to catch myself in knowing, you know, and I have a history with, with racing and winning being like the form of how I received validation from people. And then kind of questioning and wondering, like, when people say to me, oh, you're so brave for talking about this and things like that. And I'm like, you know, that that validation at the same time, like, do not become start to become addicted to that in a in another way because I also think that's very. It's another imp- bad path to go down. I think it's another bad path to go down, and because I one of my hesitancies in talking about this too is that I didn't want to become the girl with the eating disorder. Also, like I didn't want to feel like I was pigeonholed into that. Like this is just a part of me. Um, and this is, you know, a part of what makes up who I am as Amelia. Um, but it, I didn't, and I still don't want it to be, be my entire being, you know? Um, and that's been something that I've really kind of like been wrestling with and, and reconciling about like, how do you hold that space as a part of you, but then not let it overtake, um, you know, the rest of you or like, be, yeah, I don't want to be a one trick pony. <laughs> and I think that's something most people listening to this can relate to on some level, even if it's not a mental illness of some sort that they're struggling with. It could be, I'm, I'm, I just had a conversation with my old boss, Brian Metzler, and the quote that I let off the podcast with, he's like, yeah, he's like, I'm a runner, but that's not all that I am. And a lot of us, even if you're not doing it at a professional level, 
that's, we get these labels like, oh, I'm a runner or maybe it's professionally. I'm a lawyer. I'm whatever the, the coach. And it's like, yeah, those are part of who we are, but we're complex creatures as human beings. And we have different, not different identities, different parts of our identity. It's important to respect, I don't know, just to recognize and respect that. Amelia, since you have the mic, one thing you talked about a little while ago that I'd love to dig into a little bit more, you said there's a time to educate, time to advocate, and then just a time to get the F away from everything. And I I would assume that part of your getting the fuck away from things was going to therapy for three months and literally getting away. When did you realize that is what you needed to do for yourself? I had been toying with the idea actually for probably about a year now at this point um, in in realizing that I was I was living my life and I was kind of white knuckling everything and I was it was it's things seemed okay on the outside and I remembered thinking that as long as I was racing I could kind of put it aside because things were going well in that regard. Um, and, but as I've been open and talking about in, in multiple injuries and four stress fractures and three years, and you start to come to a point where you're like, okay, things aren't working. Um, something is wrong. And for me, my eating disorder was preventing me from being in the arena and doing what I love to do. And I knew what I needed to do. Like cognitively, I knew that that changing my eating would probably help me eliminate the injuries so I could get back to the sport that I love to do. But taking the actions on my own and, and part of uh, was something that I was ashamed to admit that I couldn't do on my, myself. Like I would sit down to a meal that I needed to eat and be so paralyzed by fear and just want to cry. And I mean, that's the, it's different for everyone with eating disorders, but that was my reality is that the fear was so paralyzing and I couldn't even put to words what that fear was. Um, And so understanding that going into an intensive treatment facility where you are there, I mean, I I was sleeping at my sister, so I wasn't in a full residential facility, um, but I was eight to 6 p.m. and eating all the meals there. And a lot of it is exposure therapy. And you start to do things and you realize they're not as scary as what you thought they were. Like I can eat that meal and, you know, I may be uncomfortable with it, but the feelings pass. Um, I'm sure like exposure therapy is, I'm Brad, you probably like worked with it with, um, OCD as well. Um, and then just understanding and I, having been in, um, residential treatment facilities before, like I, I knew that I needed that level of care. Um, and so I think I finally was like, realizing that there is no perfect time to upend your life and leave and, you know, take a leave of absence from work and like go off the grid. But everything about life felt so hollow that I was like, it's time. So I just, I, you know, I I went out to Barkley this year and crewed and then drove or flew back to the um, West Coast and then went straight into treatment. What was that side of it like telling your employer, hey, I need to take a leave of absence do you go into detail about why you're taking the leave of absence? I think there are a lot of people out there who 
just like you did, know, okay, I've got to take a step here for myself because it's not getting better on its own, but I'm afraid to tell my boss that I need to take this time off or I can't tell my boss I need to take this time off or what's my family going to think? What are my friends going to think? I'd love to dig into that part of it a little more. Yeah, it's a tricky thing. And and I'll be honest in that there is no like great handbook on how to do this. And, um, you know, as an, as an attorney, I knew like they can't, with FMLA and everything's like that, they can't. And, and luckily, I have an amazing employer and that has, you know, short-term disability leave and everything like that. And so I knew I couldn't be discriminated against. And I knew actually that my boss couldn't even, if I didn't tell the reasons, like he couldn't ask me. Um, and so I wrestled with what I would say. And I actually was very vague. And I I just told I told my boss that I need to take a leave for medical reasons. Um, and, you know, but, and they were super supportive and I left it at that. It wasn't actually until I came back to work and then I felt more comfortable with it um, and telling everybody where I was. And that was my next question. What was that like coming yeah. back to work, especially having a public profile where you wrote about this and anyone can read about the experience. Yeah, I think, well, so I came back to work before I wrote the piece. And so I was back at work for a few weeks um, at first. And I was actually very, uh, people were super, all that people said were, it was like, so good to have you back. Like happy that you're back here. I was anticipating like, where were you? What was going on? You know, or not that, but I was fearful of that. Sure. And it wasn't that at all. People were just like, great to have you back. And, um, I don't know if I just have amazing coworkers <laughs> cause I do. Um, but it, uh, it was very fearful. I kind of felt like a new kid at school, actually like going into a new school because I was like, I, I've been gone for three months and I didn't really tell anybody really why. So it's interesting too. You you mentioned like the the worker thing, and I think um, that was very vague. I'll, I'll try to be more clear. The worker thing, like how, like how to manage this with like jobs and employment, is um, so much of what I've come to learn is that the way to work through mental illness and mental health it requires a lot of like what I call non dualistic thinking. So things aren't good or bad. They're good in this situation, bad in the other. Um, so the notion of like taking a mental health day, if you are really in the thick of depression or anxiety and that's the key to get you help, it can be very good. If you are using it to avoid going to work when you are having low feelings, that can start a pattern of avoidance when you have low feelings, which is like what fuels these types of cycles. Um, so it's just, it, that's been really interesting to me that like pretty much everything that I've come to learn about in my recovery with OCD ends with it depends. Um, should you take a short acting anti-anxiety medication called a benzo? They're highly addictive. They kind of space you out. A lot of people say, oh, never take that. I'll tell you what, when I was in the midst of like disassociating with a panic attack, not knowing what was going on, I am very glad to have taken a benzo. But then there's a period where it's like, huh, I should not be taking this right. because it's putting a band, like it depends. So I really think um, so much of it, and, and I just wanted to mention it because the employment thing, like mental health days have become this huge thing. And I think that's great because we're talking about it more and hopefully people can get the help they need. But for anxiety disorders, which I'm the most familiar with, the last, like once you know that you have an anxiety disorder, like mental health days probably aren't the best thing for you. Like what's the best thing is to go to work with your fear and sit with it 
but that's really hard to do. Hey, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor for this episode. It's Aftershocks. Aftershocks is the award-winning headphone brand best known for its open-ear listening experience. Powered by patented best-in-class bone conduction technology, Aftershocks headphones are super comfortable and sit outside your ear so you can safely listen to music, tune into this podcast, or even take a phone call while safely being able to hear what's going on around you. Best part about these headphones? For my money, it's the battery life. Aftershocks will last you six hours. That's a quarter of your day. Whether it's a long run or a long commute, Aftershocks headphones will go the distance. Most importantly, Aftershocks headphones sound great. They deliver crisp and clear audio and feature wide dynamic sound range, deep bass, and dual noise-canceling mics. Morning Shakeout listeners can save 50 bucks on an Aftershocks endurance bundle, which includes everything you need for your next big run. You get bone conduction headphones to ensure safety and comfort, matching reflective sport belt to tote your phone and keys, a water bottle to stay hydrated, a shoe bag to keep your dirty shoes away from your clean clothes, and a cooling towel for lasting heat relief. To learn more and save 50 bucks on Aftershocks Endurance Bundles, visit tms.aftershocks.com and use the code TMS when you check out. My thanks to Aftershocks for supporting the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. I think with a lot of this stuff, and we haven't specifically talked about it in this conversation, but it can be rooted in a lack of or a loss of self-awareness. And I'd love to hear from both of you how that's, or if that's something that you are working on more now that you're still in the recovery phases from various illnesses that you've dealt with. I think it's, I think for me, it's been less about self-awareness and more about defining self um, and creating some some separateness between um, what you could call a deeper self or like an observing self or a witnessing self and the thoughts and feelings that can arise at any given moment. Um, so a big part of anxiety disorders are what are called thought-action fusion or with obsessive-compulsive disorder thought-identity fusion. So if I had a thought of harming myself, a very recurrent, obtrusive, intrusive thought that I had, I would fuse that with, oh, I must be a depressed person. And then I get really anxious that suddenly I'm depressed and I don't want to have depression. So why do I have depression? I might actually hurt myself. Boom, 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 the cycle. Um, so I think that a, a huge part of me getting better has been learning that I am not my thoughts. I am not my feelings. I'm actually this thing that can then decide and choose what to pay attention to. Um, again, OCD has a lot of looking for certainty. Um, so there's often questions that have no answers that would really um, throw me for a loop. There was like a three-week period where I could not stop obsessing about the meaning of life. Well, that's an impossible question to answer. And like existential distress isn't like very fun. Like, what am I doing here? What's the point of all? I'm going to die anyways. No one's going to remember me. Like, oh my God, like, ah, this is terrifying. Um, and I had to learn that, hey, like not every question needs an answer. And that's the self that can then choose and say, this is a question that like maybe is best not to ask because maybe I'm never going to answer it and then let that go. Um, but that was a huge change because growing up, like I've been told that my superpower is my ability to think and problem solve. 
Um, so it took for me a lot to, to separate self from thinking and feeling and learn that, hey, there's this observing self that can make the choice that even if I feel like the end of the world today, I'm going to get in the car and drive to where I have to go because I trust the therapist that told me to do it. And that feeling is actually like just a weather pattern that's passing. Um, again, talking about this sounds great, really easy. The practice of this, like that, that is like a lifelong journey um, that I think will like come up and there will be times when I'm really on it and there will be times when I'm not and it will come up in, in just kind of ebbs and flows. And realizing that that ebb and flow is okay. I think right. people, when they end up in that ebb cycle, it feels never ending and they feel like they failed and they're never going to get over this and they can never really find flow again. Yeah, totally. Because when you're in it, like that fusion can um, can just happen. There's a, a, a very close friend of mine that that um, experiences depression. He and I talk about this a lot, how not even when you're on the other side of the thing, but when you're on the other side of an episode, you're like, oh yeah, like that was just like a transient feeling. But when you're in it, it does not feel right. like that. When you're in it, it feels like it's swallowing you. Um, and I think that like, that's like, again, like the life's work is like getting to a point when you can be in it and being like, yikes, I'm feeling swallowed. But you have just that much awareness to realize that you're feeling swallowed. And then there might be a behavior that can help, whether it is exercise, whether it is sipping a tea and tasting it. Um, for me, it's like calling a really close friend. And just because I think so much of my, my stuff is like about perfection and having my shit together, just calling a close friend and being like, I feel like shit right now for no good reason and I'm judging myself. And I think that's what I meant by self-awareness in my original question and that last little bit just nailed it. Yeah, I think for me, it was interesting because a lot of the work that I have been doing is actually tapping back into feelings and not my thoughts. Um, and I, for so long, I, I would I would remember going to therapy and they'd ask, how are you doing? And then I would give an answer and she's like, okay, well, that's what you're thinking. Um, what are you feeling right now? And I realized I spent many, many years just glossing over glossing over what was actually happening happening me with me internally and going straight to what my head was saying. And um I, you know, it's it's something that is hard for me because I've always joked with people that I don't have gut feelings and that I'm like I don't know what intuition is. I don't have gut feelings. Like one of my best friends is she in like sh she's so intuitive. She is always like I just listen to my gut. I and I'm like I have, I have no idea. And through this process, I actually realized like, oh no, they're there. I just suppressed them for so long. And I think what's really important for anyone who's looking for any type of help with any type of mental, that's very, very vague, um, mental disorder, but looking at your different options for um, therapy, looking at the different models that people use, like whether that's CBT, um, DBT, um, the model that I was drawn to um, at Opal was actually this form of therapy called radically open dialectical behavioral therapy, RODBT. It's four disorders of over-control. And it is really it's part of the practice is actually looking is like a self-inquiry practice and and honing in on your feelings at that point. Um, and so a lot of it is, I think, is reconnecting with self. Um, and through those, and in that lens, there's actually a lot of behaviors, you know, that can help you in that connecting there and grounding yourself. While you have the mic, I'd love to 
talk about Amelia Boone, the athlete, and mm-hmm. how she moves forward after spending a few months in therapy. You've been running. I've seen that through social media, so I assume you're healthy from <laughs> an injury standpoint. What would you like to do athletically moving forward? Do you foresee a return to competition? Are you still trying to figure out what that's going to look like? I'd love to get some insight on that. That's been a huge part of my work. Um, and part of a huge reason that I went into treatment was also to kind of untangle my relationship with sport. And I always was kind of was questioning whether the eating disorder was part of it and what were my intentions behind movement and why was I running and why was I competing and why did I love this? Was it disordered? Was it you know, like, and, and there were just a lot of questions and things like that. Um, and I've done a lot of work in trying to untangle that. I'm actually trying to write a piece right now in about that work and around that. Um, but knowing now that actually sport for me is, is very healthy, but I need to always be very curious about, about my intentions and motivations. I'm, I'm chomping at the bit to get back to competing, like super chomping at the bit, but I had, um, you know, promised kind of my treatment team that I would take a step back and that, you know, having a full-time job as an attorney and then having recovery is almost kind of a full-time gig as well. And then adding the competing on top of that is, would be a little bit more of a juggling. Um, but I'm at a point right now where I think we're going to ease back in soon. Um, and um, I don't know exactly what it will look like, but I also am recognizing that I still have the fire to compete and um, it doesn't have to be the fire to win, um, but it's it's part of me that I'm, I am looking forward to get back to for sure. How did you navigate this with your coach when you were going through the worst of it? So I had been open. So David Roche is my coach. Um, He's known for, I opened up to him about this, you know, a few years ago and he's been a um, super supportive person for me um, and was very, very supportive throughout my entire time when I was in treatment at Opal. Um, And I think that really we've been kind of like focusing on just laying the groundwork for, um, you know, for, for a good future and, um, and really me honing into my body. Part of my, um, exploration and all this has also been exploring other forms of movement aside from running to be like, do I really love running or do I just love running for like, because it's all I know. And so people have been seeing, I've been swimming a lot. I've been, I'm practically a triathlete at this point. (laughs) Let's be honest. I know. (laughs) Brad might have some thoughts for you on that. I know. I know. I know. I know. I know. People, the people laugh about that one. Um, but just exploring new things and, um, that's been really good for me. And also, but I, I have to be aware, um, as well that look, I don't know how durable my body is and hopefully, you know, with better nutrition and everything like that, that's, that can fix, you know, the string of injuries, but, I, you know, I, it may be something that plagues me for a long time. And so that's an uncertainty that I kind of have to sit with and deal with. Is there a fear of not getting back to the level of athletic success that you've seen in the past? Because a lot of athletes, not just professionals such as yourself, when they've gone through something, it could just be 
an injury that's kept them sidelined for a while. It could be aging, mm -hmm. and they start slowing down naturally. They have a hard time reconciling that and finding peace with it, for lack of a better way to put it. It's funny because I'm actually dealing with that right now in that um, it's championship season for Spartan racing. And so there's a lot of like hoopla around, um, you know, they're for honoring former like world champions. And then there's this part of me and I'm like, man, and they're like, and the legend, Amelia Boone. I'm like, man, have I fallen into legend cat? Like I'm no longer a competitor. <laughs> I am a legend. And pretty no, no, no. I mean, I'm not like, it, it's, it's an honor, but at the same time, I'm just like, right. And so there's the part of me that's like, am I old and washed up? But I don't know if that's just, it's also, I'm kind of at peace with the entire aging process. And I'm pretty sure like, look, I'm not going to, reclaim the level of competitiveness that I was, you know, in obstacle racing. Cause I'm frankly, and I don't really have that drive. Um, but I do have this drive to constantly challenge myself in new ways and take on new things that I could entirely fail at. And I think that's, what's different is that in the past I would stick with what I knew I was good at and keep doing that over and over again because I knew that I could win and I knew that I was good at it. And now I'm like, ooh, man, I don't know if I can swim from Alcatraz, you know, to the beach, but I got two miles. I can maybe do an open water swim, you know, or I could fail. And so it's it's one of those things that um, that's kind of the competition that I'm looking at. Well, there's um, something to be said for newness. Yeah. Uh, regardless of whether it's athletic, it could be professional for someone who's, who's burned out, but to be a beginner again. Because yeah. you're going to see progress and you know that it's not something you're super competent in. And it's just that process of improving yourself that can be exciting. And I think there's some forced humility that comes with it. Um, I, I know in like my experience is that um, it's often the same like wanting to have it all together, control certainty that um, is probably some of the same temperament that like loaded my gun to have OCD. Um where when you do something new, you don't have it all together and you're not good at it and it forces you to kind of accept that and then to realize that you can have fun without having it all together. Um, I don't run nearly as fast as either of you, um, but I stopped running right around the time I started getting better because running was just like another thing that like was a part of my routine and I did it and I was pretty good and it was very easy to control. Um, and I started doing like powerlifting and you look at me like, I'm not a power lifter, but like I was learning new movements. Um, so I think that there's definitely something to that. I mean, I think, yeah, there's, there is that, there's that newness. And then I realize that it, it can come to a point then where I'm like, then you start to feel the pressure when it's no longer new. Um, but, um, I don't know. I, I think that for me, I have my eye on so many races and things like that, that I, that I've been wanting to do and wanting to get to, but actually in the, my eating disorder has prevented me from, from being able to do. So I'm really hoping that it's this entire glorious, you know, come back to sport and everything is fantastic. In reality, I know it's going to be much, much bumpier than that. Um, but I'm looking forward to, you know, working through that process for sure. I don't know that if we were going to pivot to it in, in, in my mind, this is very much related to what we're talking about and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to make the connection. So maybe you both will help me. Um, but something that I'd be curious to hear both from you, Amelia and Mario 
is this question of social media and relevance. And would you be doing, like, how important is it for both of you to be relevant? And there's different levels of relevance. There's relevance like Beyonce, and then there's relevance like writing the morning shakeout. But in the world, like, you feel relevant. And I think that this is the kind of thing where, for me, um, it's really challenging because sometimes there's a push to feel relevant that becomes the driving force or I take too much of my mood or my affect from that and that's not good. But then there's the part of me that tries to answer this question, well, is it a problem that I want to feel relevant? Does What does that say about me? And that's also not good. Um, and then there's just the part of it, which is like, if you have a podcast and a newsletter and that's how you're making your living, you need to market yourself. If you want to have sponsorship, you need to market yourself. So it's really, really freaking hard. And again, like I like to have things figured out and I don't have this figured out and maybe I never will, but I'm very curious to hear how both of you, um, think about that. I think a lot of it comes down to how do you measure relevance? So is relevance, I have tens of thousands of followers on my social media channel. That must mean I'm relevant, right? Because I got 10,000 people who care what I'm about to say. And maybe there's people who inflate those numbers because it makes them feel good. Or, you know, is it the impact that you can see your work having? I mean, for me, um, you know, hearing from readers and listeners about an episode that they listened to or something that I wrote that resonated with them makes me glad that I, I wrote it. Um, if it connected with them in some way or helped them solve a problem, um, I mean, that's the only relevance I need for myself. That's why I, that's why I do it. Um, but I don't know. For me, I've never... I don't know if I've, I've never thought of it like quite as, quite as relevant. I, I'm going to put you on the spot because there have been times when you've told me, and it's something that occasionally I catch myself doing, that you will like tweet something mm. and then five minutes later you're checking because you're like, oh, that's a good one. I wonder if it's going to take off. Sure. That to me falls in the cycle of like relevance. Yeah. And, like and, that. and, and anyone who hasn't done that, I think is probably lying. Be, yeah, you're lying. Yeah, you're you're totally lying to yourself. yourself. But yeah, I mean, I, and I think that's what social media perpetuates that. And that's why, you know, there's, there's been discussion behind the scenes like, oh, do you eliminate like the likes and the, and like the metrics of it? Um, because that's what messes with your head. And it's like numbers mess with, with your head. It happens as athletes too. I mean, I say it to my athletes all the time. I'm like, if your goal is to run three hours for the marathon and for whatever reason you run 301, 20, like that's not failure. Um, you know, that, that's not failure. And it's the same thing with like, you know, whether it's a tweet that went out or an article that I wrote, like a million views isn't necessarily success. I mean, it could have resonated with three people. And to me, that's like, that's important. So, I mean, I, I think of, you know, relevance in that way, but I mean, yeah, I've struggled with the same thing everybody else struggles with. It's like just checking, checking the numbers and checking the stats. And for me, I realize that's a trap I can easily fall into and I try to just push those things as far away as possible. And like I've taken all social media off of my phone so that I'm not tempted to pull it out of my pocket when I'm walking down the street to see if I've gotten like X number of retweets and I've got to go home and like dig my iPad out of the drawer because that's where my social media apps are. And it's like sometimes even when I walk through the door, it's like I've got to fight that, you know, that temptation. It's it's hard. I mean, that's you know, that's the world we live in, especially when you do have a platform and it sort of 
helps market or support the other work that you're doing. Like, yeah, you want to know if stuff is relevant because if it's, if it's not, then I mean, I'm not going to make a living, but it's, it's just finding a balance with it and making sure that it maintains a, a healthy place in my life. But I think it's to one of the points you made earlier, just one of those things that it sort of ebbs and flows. And when I'm in a bit of an ebb, I've just got to recognize that and realize that it's temporary and I can come out of it. Yeah. And then Amelia, I'm, I'm curious to hear how you, um, how you're currently thinking about this, if it's changed at all. Um, and then particularly with um, having such a following on Instagram, which is really about at least at its core, like a look. Yeah, this is... Uh, so I've had many, many therapy sessions about feeling relevant um, and in, in different capacities because I think that it's... We can talk about the social media one too, but then it's also... I remember I went back to a Spartan race for the first time the other week in, in a year. And I remember kind of walking around at first and I was like, I don't feel relevant anymore because I'm not competing and I don't, I don't, it was a part of me that was like, I don't even really know what I'm doing. And it was like a weird feeling for me, but I recognize that feeling. Um, and I know like that it, and then I realized, and then when people came up to me and started talking to me and, oh, it's great to see you, I all of a sudden felt relevant again. Um, but then you question, you're like, is that a bad thing? Like, but that's just human nature. Like you want to feel like people love you and care that you're there. Um, and I think on social media, I, I'll be totally honest. It's like, I haven't posted anything on Instagram for like two weeks. And the thought went through my head today that I was like, man, I should really like put something out there. But I was like, but I don't, but I was like, right, to stay relevant. But I was like, but I don't really, I was like, I have a lot of stuff to stay, say. I always have a lot of stuff to say. But it's like, I'm not really doing anything right now. It's like, and normally I'm like, don't have a race coming up. I don't have, I didn't have a race that just finished. And so I'm like, am I just pushing content to push content? Um, and, but I think the one way that I, and I encourage everyone to, to challenge this is like, to take breaks and to go. When I was in treatment in Opal, I think I posted once on Instagram over a period of like three months and the world didn't disappear. Like I didn't, I don't think I lost like 40 million followers as a result, you know? Um, And just to kind of, to constantly test that. And for me, it's also like setting boundaries on, you know, like posting something and then walking away and not and not checking because we all do that. We all like check and be like, oh, okay, I think that's human nature. You know, I I, I would not, I like part of me when Instagram goes down, I'm like, oh, thank God Instagram is down. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but it feels well, it's down like, for everyone because then you're like, oh, well, I'm not the only one who's not posting. It's the same for everybody. The comments. Yeah. Well, it comes, I think it comes down to ego. I mean, all of what we've just been describing comes down to ego. We want to feed it. It's that dopamine hit that you talked about earlier. It feels good when something that we put out is is reinforced, but I think that can also, you know, lead to this false sense of, you know, relevance for like for yeah, I think that's what it is. It's a it's a it's a false sense of of relevance. But you know, what you described, I think that's what's important is to be able to go to an event, or even if you're not at an event, just having someone check in on you randomly. Um, to me, that's like, that's how I want to feel. That's how I know, like I'm I'm relevant. Like if I've been dark for a little while, someone that I know, or even someone that I don't sends me a message and says, Hey, you know, 
you haven't posted for a while, haven't seen you, just making sure like, you know, everything's okay. I think that's the greatest sense of relevance any of us can have, but you know, we can have relevance monitored by these little devices that are in our pocket and we want to keep, you know, getting that dopamine hit. So we keep checking it and it's like a vicious cycle. But to your point, I think being able to, you know, step away and realize that everything's going to be okay. If you can do that regularly, I think it's a healthy habit. Yeah. And I think that in the same way that I've realized that that human interaction and connection. And, and we've, you know, we've talked about this at length and, or many people have talked about this at length and that, you know, social media is filling a void for the fact that we're not as present in our, you know, daily lives with communities anymore. And I noticed at times when I am at events with a bunch of people, I don't feel that draw towards the validation from, you know, the interwebs. Um, and so I think that, putting myself in situations where I am more around people in the present, you know, like there and then not, not feeling that draw, not feeling that need. And then I also think it's so important. And one of the practices that I've started doing, because like, as you said, Mario, um, it's helpful for you is that when people just randomly check in. So I've been, I've actually been picking up the phone and making phone calls, which nobody does anymore. And nine times out of 10, nobody answers. (laughs) And then when they do answer, they're like, is everything okay? They're like, why are you calling me? And I'm like, I just wanted to chat. I'm just wanted to check in, see how you're doing. Cause like some, I know for me, those random reach outs, when people do that, even if I don't respond immediately, like that's so key. It's really that's meaningful. so key. Yeah. yeah. Brad does that all the time and vice versa. I mean, we'll just pick up the phone and call one another. It's not always at the greatest time, but it's, it's just nice to know that someone cares generally how you're doing and it's not about broadcasting it to the world so that you can get a thousand likes on it. Yeah. I, I, I love Amelia, what you said about how when you're actually in like intimate situations with other people, you don't have that drive um, to to be relevant on the internet or like in the culture of endurance sport or what have you. Because um, I think like that's that's what I am slowly realizing is that it is for me like so contextual. So if I'm around this stuff and I'm doing it, it's going to make me feel really relevant in a way that's going to feel good in the short term but have the potential to make me feel hollow later on. Whereas if I'm not around it or I'm not thinking about it, then I don't miss it at all. Um, like examples are when I'm like on a hike or it's like there's, there's no times when I'm like, oh, like I should be... Tw-. No, it's like this is the point of life. It's like to be hiking with my best friend. But or, or and yet when I'm sitting in a computer and that stuff's all there, it, and that's why these are very profitable companies is it has this pull to, to pull you in. Um, and if you're in an industry, writing, competing, being a person, like a public figure of some sort, you kind of have to do that. Um, unless you're like Stephen King or Hiroki Murakami, like really big time, but even Gladwell's on Twitter. So like, I think there's a part of you that has to do that. Um, but I'm questioning that assumption more and more in myself is what does that look like? Um, but yeah, like that's something that I still struggle with. And then, and this is like therapy for me, I... I struggle not only with that, but then I struggle with like the unanswerable question of, well, what does it say about me that like I want to be relevant? And what does it say about me that I do this? And there's no way to answer that question other than like, it says I'm a human, but yeah. I mean, I think it says that you're actually 
doing more than a lot of people and actually questioning that and recognizing that, you know, because most people won't, most everybody wants to be relevant, but most people won't even like question that that is a bad thing or the intentions or the intentions behind it. And I think also for me, it's also reframing how I view and how I use social media is that like, you know, consume what is good for you and then know what is not good for you. Um, And then also like really trying to frame it as a celebration of other people, you know, like, and so I view it as like somebody like posts a picture of their cat and they're super proud of their cat. I don't really like cats. Sorry, Brad. But like, I'm like, you know what? I will like your post because I am proud of you that you like your cat, you know? So it's kind of like, if it's like, if you look at it as kind of like a love fest, then there's some great stuff that comes out of it, you know? <laughs> Going the other direction from that, we talked earlier about how you sharing your story through social media can be really empowering yeah. for some people, but it can go the other way too. I think, you know, social media can also induce anxiety on some people, it can get them to, you know, question themselves as it relates to, you know, body image, athletic performance, um, life success, like all of those sort of things. What advice would you both give to everyone listening to this as far as how they navigate the social media world when these types of things pop up in their feed and induce feelings that we just talked about? Yeah, I think um, (laughs) it depends. My favorite answer, no. Um, But I I, I think that there are a number of things. First of all is, is change what you're consuming. If you notice something comes up over and over and over again, and it's really putting you in a bad headspace, there's there's no reason that you need to subject yourself to that. Um, And I mean, there have been times when I've been injured and sidelined where I have just stopped kind of not stopped following, but just stopped paying attention to all the running stuff because Mm -hmm. I just, I needed in my mind to take that break. Um, And then also I think just change. So like use it as a tool into like how in, into cultivating like different parts of yourself as well. So like for me, I would change my Instagram feed to like pictures of cabins and pictures of dogs and things like that during those times where in the, and then other times I'm like, okay, cool. I want to dip my toe back in the running world. All right. Gung ho on that. Um, and I don't think there's any shame in doing that. Just like recognizing those triggers and trying to avoid them in times when you might feel vulnerable. Yeah. And I think, um, absolutely for anybody who is struggling with body image or eating disorders, stop following the Fitspo accounts. Like they're just not going to do anything for you. You know, (laughs) I mean, that I think would be like number one. Um, and that was never really my jam, but I realized actually that I like, I don't know how, but was following things like that. And it just wasn't good for my headspace. And then I also started like being more size inclusive and health inclusive. And so like following different accounts of like all different types of bodies and people celebrating all different types of like achievements and things like that. Um, Just to give yourself a broader array of viewpoints. Yeah. I'm not sure that I have... um much to add. I think that, you know, maybe, and and this seems to probably have come out in the discussion already, is also don't judge your, try to not judge yourself also for how you use it. Because 
I, whenever I, and this is a conversation that I love to have, um, whenever I have it, like I'm often reminded by other people, like you're not on Instagram, you're not on Facebook, like you actually do much less social media than the normal person. Um, and it can look like that on the outside, but on the inside, like if I have like a tweet that does really well, I feel really good. And sometimes it doesn't. And like, I'm like, well, should I take this tweet down? Like what happened? I don't like that version of myself. Um, I shouldn't say that I don't like that version of myself, but like, that's not my best self. I don't like the mood that can come with that. Um, so for me, it's been really just a total surrender to realizing that I don't have power over these tools and I'm going to like, it's purely my environment. So much like you, Mario, like I've taken, and this is not the answer for everyone. This is for me and how I manage my relationship with this stuff. I took it, took everything off my phone, um, when I'm on Twitter on my computer, I'm not always great with this, but I try to make it like, oh, I'm going to be on Twitter for 20 minutes now. And I'm going to check notifications. I'm going to respond to people. I'm going to scroll. Um, it's not like, oh, I'm just randomly browsing or I'm just sitting there looking at my notifications, um, which I don't have too much pride to admit. Like I do that as much as the next person, probably more. Um, and then coming back to the things in real life that actually like bring me joy. Um, and, and there's a, there's a different texture. The In the moment, the playing with my 18-month-old or having a tweet get, you know, a thousand retweets or whatever, the thousand retweets probably feels a little bit better and more exciting. But at the end of the day, the thousand retweets leaves me feeling like hollow and playing with my kid leaves me feeling really full. And it doesn't have to be a kid, but I think it's like the intimate connection. It's no different than what Amelia said in a slightly different context. Like when you're in a community with people that you care about, you don't miss that stuff and you're not like thinking about it because you're doing something better. And I think if the default is Twitter and that's what you're doing, then you it's easy to get warped in that cycle. And as Amelia put really elegantly, like Twitter is filling a place for community. But the more that you can do to make the default actual community... I think, I hope, it's my plan that that stuff just kind of takes care of itself. Um, and then you can have more of a playful, fun relationship with it. Or if you're a writer, have a relationship with it like it's truly just marketing. And if you were working at a marketing firm, you probably wouldn't spend so much time obsessing over your relationship with marketing. You'd just be like, oh, this is marketing. This is what I do. It's being very non-emotional yeah. about it. Yeah, and still doing your best work and realizing that you can connect with people and not judging it. I met Steve on Twitter. I'm at Amelia on Twitter. I'm at you on Twitter. So like, it's it's really easy too to just sit here and judge it. Um, but I don't think that that is the right move either. It's a big, it depends. And I mean, it's been huge for me in terms of people who have reached out, you know, and about sharing their stories when I've like talked about mine. And so that, I mean, there's there's tons of great stuff, you know, it's just always being curious about, you know, your interactions with it. Um, Last bit before we wrap up here for both of you, what advice would you give to folks who are struggling with some sort of mental illness, whether it is an eating disorder or OCD, anxiety, depression, and they don't know where to turn? We've given a lot of I think, helpful advice over the course of this hour-long conversation or so. But what will be your final bit of it for those who want one big takeaway from this episode? I mean, if there's anything that I learned, that it's that disorder thrives in the darkness um, and thrives in silence. And so the first thing is is 
I don't say you have to open up and talk to everybody about it, but open up to somebody and make a first step and make a phone call. Um, for me, when I was starting to research, um, you know, finding therapists, things with eating disorders, there are a number of websites, um, you know, National Eating Disorders Association, um, where you just start Googling resources and and going down that way. And I think that even just taking the first step of of making a phone call, um, of admitting that, you know, you can't do it on your own and you don't have to do it on your own. There's nothing wrong with not being, with not doing it on your own, you know, that sometimes, um, you know, that, that help is okay and it's there. Um, so, um, I am always a resource. Like I said, I, I, <laughs> I'm still, you know, navigating all myself too, but I think it's really just, just taking that first step is so important. I completely echo what Amelia said. Um, and then the, I guess the thing that I'll say in particular with obsessive compulsive disorder, um, just because it's such a misunderstood condition that like, it's not about being super organized or a neat freak. It's about like really intrusive thoughts and urges. And oftentimes people don't get help because they're scared that if they get help, they're going to get locked up. So like a very common theme in OCD is you have the thought of, um, stabbing someone in like stabbing a stranger or pushing someone out in front of the subway if you ride the BART or subway. And not only do you have that thought, but like you have an urge to do it. Um, and I think that a lot of people, like I said, there's research shows lots of people don't get help because they think, oh my God, like I'm a terrible person. They're going to put me in jail or like, you know, put the commit me to an insane asylum. Um, so just to recognize like there is a disorder that affects 30 million people in this country and some of the most common themes are some of the most taboo things. Um, so it's self-harm, something that I struggled with, thoughts of harming yourself even though you don't really want to. Um, other violence, specifically towards people that you love, a very, very common theme of OCD um, that I experienced a little bit, but I kind of knew it was coming, is people have kids and they have thoughts of suffocating their child. Now, if you don't know what OCD is, or you think OCD is being a neat freak, you're not going to get help. You're going to resist that thought, which just makes it stronger and potentially go down a very dark path towards actually harming yourself because you think that you're nuts. Um, so I just think, you know, if OCD, purely OCD awareness, it's so important to realize that like the disorder is nonstop intrusive thoughts and temptations to do the unthinkable. And once you realize that, like once someone told, once a psychiatrist told me, you're not, you do not have suicidal depression, you have OCD. That was like the biggest weight off my shoulders. And I had no idea what OCD was until then. Um, so that, I guess that that's just a little bit of like very narrow. If someone's listening with OCD or you're having these thoughts, like get help, don't be scared. Um, and then more generally, just everything that Amelia said, like I couldn't agree more just the first step before you even think about what method of therapy or what's recovery going to look like, or am I going to get better? It's just tell someone. And if it feels too scary to go to a professional right away, then go to a friend. Um, if it feels so scary to go to a friend, go to a family member. If that feels too scary, um, maybe in the show notes we can include, there are these um, 1-800 numbers that you can call and talk to someone. And if that feels too scary, you can text them. So just slowly start to open up um, because that, that, that's the pathway to getting better. 
That's great advice. And we will put all of those numbers in the show notes. This is an important conversation. Thank you both for making the time to have it with me in person. Yeah. Thank you, Mario. Thank you. All right. Another episode in the books. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you did, or heck, even if you didn't, go to the Apple Podcasts app, whatever platform you're listening to this on, and leave a rating and a review. It only takes a second, it helps new listeners to discover the show, and it lets me know what's really resonating with you. Also, a big thank you to Aftershocks for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Aftershocks is the award-winning headphone brand best known for its open-ear listening experience. Powered by patented, best-in-class bone conduction technology, Aftershocks headphones sit outside your ear so you can listen to your music and hear your surroundings. To learn more and save 50 bucks on an Aftershocks endurance bundle, visit tms.aftershocks.com and use the code TMS when you check out. A big shout-out, as always, to my man John Summerford of bearsrecords.com. He takes care of all my audio needs for this show, the editing, the music, all of it. It's all John, and he's a big part of my small team here at the Morning Shakeout. Also, a couple more thank yous to some members of my team, Jeff Stern for the editorial assistance and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also conveniently called The Morning Shakeout. You can find that at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe, and you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you'll enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's all I've got for this one. I'm Mario Fraioli, and you've been listening to The Morning Shakeout Podcast. (laughs) 